the flood, the covenant rainbow in the sky, the baptism of Jesus. These aren't really the scriptures we'd expect for the first Sunday in Lent. It's true that after being baptized, Jesus heads off into the desert for 40 days, but shouldn't we be hearing more from castigating prophets and stern apocalyptic warnings from the gospel as we begin Lent? We usually think of Lent as a time of stripping away of penitence and of self-denial. But how do we think about Lent after a year in which so much has been stripped away, so much has been denied, and so much has been frightening, if not dangerous, and so much has been lost? There are ways in which we have spent more than 40 weeks in the desert of isolation, and for some it feels like 40 days until vaccination. In the desert of this pandemic, we face loneliness, isolation, and the wild beasts of mutating viruses. This year, I think we need a gentler Lent and to find less the God of judgment and more the God of yearning, the God who yearns for us. And I think that this morning's readings can help us. There is a secret that unlocks and joins today's readings, a keystone that bridges from Genesis to Mark, and that secret is in the shape of an octagon. Now, if we were together at Trinity, I would ask all of you if anyone knew where there was an octagon in the church. Perhaps I would add that Trinity sits on River Street as a bit of a hint. I would wait for a nod or a hand, surely someone knows, and almost always an observant fifth grader has the answer. But here over Zoom, I'll tell you the answer. The octagon is the shape of a baptismal font. Now, why would the baptismal font have eight sides? What is the significance of eight? Well, our reading from 1 Peter tells us that God waited patiently during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were saved through water. And baptism, which this prefigured, now saves you. Those eight persons in the ark, the remnant of humanity who received God's covenant, were Noah and his wife, his three sons and their wives. But there is another eight. In the Jewish week, Jesus rose on Sunday, the day after the Saturday Sabbath, which was the seventh day. The ancients thus saw the Sunday resurrection as taking place on the Jewish eighth day. So we have eight and eight. And after the great flood, God hung his bow, the rainbow, in the sky as a sign, a covenant, that the flood would not come again. After the devastation of the crucifixion, Jesus was raised from the dead, a sign, a covenant, that evil and death would not overcome the world. So a baptismal font with eight sides is a symbol that bridges between God's covenant to Noah and his descendants 
and the new covenant in Jesus, into which we join with our baptismal covenant. That places baptism and the eight-sided font as the bridge over the great floods of history and ties together our readings from Genesis and Peter and Mark. Now, it's Sunday morning. That's a lot to take in. Let's just rest for a moment. The evangelists who wrote the Gospels and the earliest Christians really wanted to understand the Jesus moment in the context of their existing body of scripture and prophecy from Jewish scriptures. What they found in these Old Testament writings was that paradise was lost and a Messiah would come and restore humanity to paradise found again. These early Christians found that the Garden of Eden, the flood, the ark, the exodus, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus could be brought together in a fabric of prophecy and fulfillment. The ark made of wood prefigured the cross. The remnant Noah prefigured a new creation, a fresh start for the descendants of Adam. The flood prefigured Israel's crossing of the Red Sea, which itself prefigured the crossing of the Jordan to the Promised Land, and this prefigured Jesus standing in the Jordan at his baptism. The Hebrews 40 years in the wilderness prefigured Jesus 40 days in the wilderness. The covenant of God's rainbow after the flood prefigured God's <clears throat> covenant given to Moses, which prefigured the new covenant in Jesus. And the dove that brought the olive branch to Noah the sign that safety was near, prefigured the Holy Spirit that hovered like a dove over Jesus when he came up out of the water. In other words, the message of this fabric of prophecy and fulfillment is that all of history points to salvation. It is as though the life and death and resurrection of Jesus was the second verse of a hymn, a hymn that begins with Adam and Noah in its first verse. Now, this might sound like literary criticism gone wild, but for the ancients, this was their way of studying scripture and discerning its meaning. It was through this study and tradition that they moved closer to God, and we can find meaning there too. Now, we haven't quite gotten to Lent yet, but we will. So let's talk about <clears throat> the third verse of this hymn of history. The third verse of the hymn is about us, that we are loved by a merciful God who wants to save God's people, who wants us all to be spared. A message of the flood is that a righteous one, Noah, is spared. The message of the crucifixion is that a righteous one, Jesus, is spared. Both were beginnings of a new creation. The message of the future is that God wants us all to become the righteous ones, returning home. That's sort of a breath of fresh air. 
sort of like a dove with an olive branch landing on our boat. In our scriptures, the end point of history, the parousia when Jesus will come again, is an apocalyptic event seen as bringing both judgment and salvation. And one of the great questions of theology is, why hasn't this happened yet? Peter, in his second letter, provides an answer. He wrote that, The Lord delayeth not his promise, but dealeth patiently for your sake, not willing that any should perish, but that all should return to penance. Penance, in my thinking, is recalling our baptism, recalling not only God's covenant with us, but our covenant with God. Covenant is mutual, and Peter is simply calling us to God's closeness. And here's the thing. Here is the gentler Lent, that God forgoes the last days of judgment and paradise, waiting for us to come around. God has faith in us. God yearns for us. Penitence, repentance, is less guilt in the face of judgment and more hope in the age to come, returning to the accompaniment of God. So whatever Lenten path leads you to that hope, to that love, and that accompaniment, follow it. That is the Lent we need now, and that is this time that God offers to us. Let us find the welcoming and healing God. Let this gentler Lent call us home. So, in closing, I'd like to offer some suggestions for this gentler Lent. Set aside time for God. Set aside time for yourself so that you have time for God. Allow yourself to just be with God. Sister Wendy Beckett, the late CBS, PBS, sorry, art critic, was once asked about prayer. She said, I listen to God. The next question was, what does God say? Her answer was, God listens. So, just listen. In this time of isolation and separation, be with all Christians in prayer. Those who have been, those who will be, and those who are now. When I was in seminary, I met a priest who had been imprisoned in South Africa during apartheid. He was in solitary confinement for 10 years. He said he had survived by praying with the communion of saints and never felt himself to be alone. And in this hard time, grant yourself something that brings you close to God's love, to the warmth of creation. And let Lent itself be a gift 
that helps us to grow toward God, who I think is hoping for us, cheering for us, loving us and sustaining us. Jesus urged us to pray to Abba, the near and gentle God, who like a parent watching a child learning to walk, knows that we can do it. We are all in the ark of the church in a journey through waters that like the rivers of Eden, the flooding ocean, and the River Jordan will carry us home. May our welcoming and loving God uphold us on our way. Amen.